This is indeed the gospel. We've just been singing, in fact, the great truth of Easter. We sing that every Sunday. We don't only wait for Easter time to sing of the resurrection because the resurrection is the reason that we meet every Sunday. Every Sunday when we meet, it is the first day of the week, and that is following the great first Easter Sunday. We meet together on the day of Jesus' resurrection. If you have your Bible, take it and turn with me to 1 John. And um, if you don't have an outline, these men are coming forward to give one to you. Uh, The way we study the Bible, you will need one. If you're joining us online, we want you to know that you can download a PDF of these notes um, right there from our website, so you can go and find that, and we hope that you will do that. Because God's Word is worthy of our investigation. God's Word is worthy of our study. And uh, you don't need to know what the pastors of this church think so much as you need to know what God has already said. Amen? And so that's why we come to His Word. Now, we have been studying 1 John. We've been studying this little tiny letter, and it's packed with truths for every century, for every generation, for every person, um, because this is indeed the eternal Word of God. And the modern-day church needs the message of 1 John. The modern-day church needs to look and to see. The people that are here this morning need to be challenged with the message of 1 John. And part of the big picture of the message of 1 John as we are coming to the end of this letter is this, that for Christians, God wants them to have many blessed assurances, many truths that, that He has given to us that He wants us to know, He wants us to hold on to. But for those who think they're Christians who really are not Christians because they've never been transformed by the gospel, 1 John is a calling for them to look honestly at their lives. And so there are tests of salvation in 1 John. We've seen that all the way through. And those tests are, in fact, repeated in three cycles. And so we've looked at that. But here we come to the final part where we see some things that he really wants us to know. And the first one was that he wants us to know that we have salvation in Christ Jesus. For those who have been born again, he wants you to know that you know that you know that you're his. These things have been written to you who believe in Jesus, the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. But I think that there's some other things that we've been looking at. Look at 1 John chapter 5 and verse 18, um, and notice this whole passage that is here. Um, and, and this is only on the screen. This is not on your outline, so just look at the screen for a moment. And I want you to notice there where I put in the, the bright blue, um, you see several things that are here. In verse 18, it says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. That's where we've been for the last couple of weeks, and that's where we're going to be again today. But then it goes on. Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that what? We may know Him. So here we are, in the, and, and this, by the way, is the very last two verses of the book. This is the very last two verses. Verse 21 is the end. But look at verse 20. It says that we may know Him who is true. You see, God wants you to know Him. And that He has a great desire that you would know that you know Him, that you would have confidence in Him. Look what it says as it goes on. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life as opposed to the false gods that lead to death. And then in verse 21, and we'll look at this eventually, little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's the very final statement in this letter to the churches. Well, we've been looking at that verse 18. Look up there at verse 18. And this is on the screen or on the page in the first box in front of you. This is the first time I've ever done a double box. And I'm gonna explain why there's a double box this morning. Usually the box is the key passage And so, what we're doing is we're unpacking verse 18 over these last couple of Sundays. 
Um, Enrique did a great job of helping us find and see how, through Jesus Christ, we can overcome sin. And that's needed for us because there is this very hard statement. Verse 18 has a very hard statement. We know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning. And we've been looking at what does it mean to not keep on sinning? What does it mean to not go on living in your sin? being unchanged by the gospel. That's what John is getting at. Because there's some people who come and say, oh yes, I believe. Oh yes, I love God. As you can see in other chapters of 1 John. Oh yes, I believe. Oh yes, I love God. But yet he says, if you still hate your brother, you don't know, you don't love God and you're a liar. So we see that this is not a new message. He is continuing. He's bringing it home, and that's part of what we want to do this morning. Now, I want us to finish this dealing with this issue of verse 18 by looking this morning at the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians is, without question, one of my favorite, ver- favorite chapters, or excuse me, books of the Bible. Um, And I want you to see a brief outline of Ephesians um, so that you can understand how this fits. So notice on your outline here, it says the outline of Ephesians. There's only, how many chapters in the book of Ephesians? There's only six chapters. So it's a short letter. There's just six chapters. And it's very interesting. Almost exactly the first half is different from the second half, and it's, it's just really two main divisions. And I want you to see this. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are about our position in Christ. This is who you are if you have become a Christian. If He has changed your life, true Christians have a position in Christ. Now, notice the little subline there. This is all the Christ that, that Christ has changed us, and fill it in, to be. This is what He's changed us to be. And he's already done it for those who are in Christ. It happens when you are saved. This is why Ephesians chapter 1 goes on and on and on saying, in him, in him, in Christ, in Christ, in him. And it describes all that God has given us. So it describes our position. But then, chapters 4, 5, and 6, it talks about our practice, our practice in life as true Christians. Now, I want you to notice the order of this. It doesn't start off declaring our practice and then declaring our position. Why does it not start off declaring our practice and then tell us our position? Instead, it says, this is who you are in Christ, and then this is what you're to do in Christ. Do you know why? Because you're not saved by your practice. You're not saved by your doing. You see, it's Christ who does everything to save you when he died on the cross. And when you come to believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through his sacrifice for our sins. And then once we come to that, we now are learning not only about what all he's done for us in the moment of our salvation, but then we're also learning about how we are to live in him. So, the, the first three chapters deal with our position, the next three chapters deal with our practice, and that is, fill it in, that is all that Christ calls us to do as saved people. Now, there's a lot of people that emphasize the second point over the first point. A lot of Christianity is talking about the do, the do, the do, it's a, it, and it really winds up in a message of moralism. It doesn't wind up in the message of God's holiness, God's grace, and His grace applied to us through Christ, and our dependence in our worship of Christ for His great grace and salvation. And so, we as Christians, as Bible-believing Christians, need to understand that our practice comes out of our position. Does that make sense? You see, you, you act like a Christian because Christ has saved you. You don't act like a Christian because you're hoping to save yourself. You see, fill this in. The clear instruction for Christians is to leave behind 
fill it in, is to leave behind the ways of the world and embrace the ways of Christ. You see, there's easy believism that is very popular in this day and time. Just come and receive Jesus. Come and accept Jesus. And he'll give you uh, eternal life. He'll, he'll, he'll come and be your genie that pops out and helps you when you're in trouble. And you can look to him when you're sad. And you can look to him um, when you're lonely. You can look to him when you have trouble. You know, there's many, many people that the only time they call upon God is when the car wreck occurs or the cancer verdict comes in. But we are called to be a people who look and embrace him in all of our ways, with all of our life. And so we leave behind the thinking and the morals and the actions of the world, and we embrace the ways of Christ. We always need this reminder. I want you to see this um, because this plays into this whole picture of do we just keep on sinning or do we really come to faith and transformation in Christ. So, um, this passage is a powerful passage, Ephesians chapter 4, which is in the practice part. So, now he's dealing with the practice of true Christians. Notice here, in Ephesians chapter 4, this is the box on the page, the second box, and notice there in verse 17. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, what that means is the, the godless, those who do not know God. Um, that's the Gentiles, those who are not the God-fearing. They are, they are not those who have come to know God. And we're going to see how they walk. People who don't have Christ, people who don't have the one true God in a true manner of what God has revealed in His Word, we start to see the way that they live that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Verse 19, they have become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality. And then notice this, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, it's not saying that they are greedy in itself. What it's saying is, is that they're greedy to do sin. They're greedy to, to, to do that was wrong. Every, every type of impurity. God is pure. He is holy. That's what holy means. He's, he's pure. There's no, there, there's no wrong in him. There's no sin in him. He is pure. And but here the picture is, is that before Christ or outside of Christ, we are in the flesh, we are in our thinking, and we are, we are not yet enlightened of what His Word has said and what His Word has done, and through the power of His Spirit to know the things that are spiritual. And so in verse 19 it says that we have become, and this is all of the world without Christ, we have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Verse 20, that that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your what? Uh, that's very weak. Look at verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to Okay, your former way of life, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires, verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So your mind takes on something new. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to, what does it say there? To put on the new self. And notice what the new self is. It's created after the likeness of God, and the likeness of God is in true righteousness, and holiness. And so this morning, I, I want us to see, number one, we see the corruption of the old life in the fallen world around us. And that's what Paul wanted the Ephesians to see. He wanted to notice that these, as, they, as he 
um, directed them to look out at the world around them living in falsehood, he's saying, I want you to see that what you see out there is not Christ. That is not, that's the way a world goes without Christ. Notice in verse 17, in the futility of their minds. You see, the picture is this, is that their minds are so limited and they, they think they kind of know everything. They think that, they, that everything that they see is what is. And so in their own limited perception that is not enlightened by the eternal ruler of the universe who knows all things and knows the truth about all things, in the futility of their minds, whether through their own high-minded philosophies or whether it's through their own simple pursuit of pleasures, whether it's a very high-thinking person or a very low-thinking person, however it goes, without the regenerate work of Christ in their mind and their heart and without the eternal truths that God gives to us through his word and spirit, they have a futile mind. Notice this, and I want you to notice this, that in verse 17 it says, in the futility of their minds, and I want you to notice that there's the importance of the mind, you see, Christianity is cognitive as well as experiential. Not experimental, but experiential. Now, we live in a day and time when a lot of emphasis is put on experience. And there's some traditions, there's some um, churches, there's some movements, I could say, in the name of Christianity, that's, it's kind of all about your experience. It's all about your emotions. It's all about either the feelings that you have or the chill bump or the, um, you know, the intrigue of the mind in these things a little bit. Um, or it's all about the, I feel good because I'm doing this or I'm doing that. I feel better about myself. And, and there's, there's not a lot of interest in the truth that should be known and thought about. It's the truth by which we come to walk in the knowledge of God. And so it is right that we as Christians look at his word. Words mean things, and he's given us a lot of words so that we can know him, and that's why we should study the Bible. That's why we should read the Bible. That's why we should think about the Bible. That's why we should dig into the Bible and come to know it. Because God is a God that has given us language, and that language is important. It means things. It has ramifications. So the, I want you to notice this, that in Christianity, that the idea of thinking and the idea of cognition is very important. You need to be a thinking Christian. Now, what's interesting about reading, some people say, well, I don't like to read. I understand some of you were not raised in a circumstance where you, you, you read very much and that you, um, that you grew in your studies and that kind of thing. And, you know, you don't have to be a scholar. Being a scholar is not the prerequisite to being a Christian. But I will say this, that the gospel is knowledge. And the Word of God for life is knowledge. And we, we are called to come to know it. So maybe you weren't a scholar growing up, but now God has called you to come and learn of him. And so every Christian should have this desire to grow in the knowledge of God. And I would say this, that every true Christian will have a desire to grow in the knowledge of God. So that we don't continue in the futility of our own minds, but we are renewed in our thinking, as this passage even indicates. Notice the next one. They are darkened in their understanding. The idea of that is they're blindfolded. They, they, they can't see. They're blinded. They're darkened in their understanding. They don't have an understanding of the things of God. They're alienated from the life of God. That means to be cut off. Isaiah 59 declares that your sins have cut you off from God. And so this is alienated from the life of God. And then we see this other idea of a lack of knowledge, of ignorance. They don't know. And this passage even deals with that issue of ignorance. Not knowing God in his truth. Again, notice the emphasis on the mind and knowing and not being ignorant. 
But it's not merely about knowing, but it also has to do about the rebellion of a hard heart. The rebellion and even callousness of a hard heart. So what is the result of all of that? We see it in verse 19 and 20. The result of all that is our depravity without the regenerating work of Christ, which means, and fill this in, there's no blank there for you, but I want you to fill this in. Our total depravity without the regenerating work of Christ means that we are hopeless and helpless. We're hopeless and we're helpless, and there's nothing that we won't do. I mean, I invite you to just think about the images on your television this week. The images on your television this week, um, and in every generation we see this from time to time uh, throughout the centuries, um, that there's mass atrocities. There's, there's unbelievable, unspeakable terror and harm. And you, you don't just have to look to Ukraine for those things, but in the depravity of our mind, in the rebelliousness, the callousness, the pursuit of the things of this life, the pursuit of the moment right now, right here, <laughs> much of the world has been hearing stories over the last two weeks, three weeks, about our own little Miami Beach. I mean, here we are. We're right on the, I mean, we're just out the ca- outside the castle walls here in Hollywood of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, and, and we don't sit here and think highly about ourselves and, you know, and just condemn them. But I think that the attitude of the Scriptures and the attitude of the, of the Christians should be that we look at life without Christ, and that's, that's where life without Christ leads. And not that everybody's going to act like that, but within them, is that rebellion. Within them is that ignorance. And let me tell you, we can't think highly of ourselves. If you start to think highly of yourselves and look down your nose at the pagans around us, let me tell you that that is not a Christian heart and a Christian attitude. What should be is, number one, a gratitude to God for opening your eyes and seeing and saving you from that mess, but then also a compassion that looks at them and says, They're blinded. And God has said, go tell them. And you say, oh, they're too hard of heart. Well, listen, you're not God. You don't decide that. God is the one who decides who's too hard of heart. And so this is the picture of this, that we we come to this understanding that to be in Christ means, yes, indeed, we, and that's what Paul's saying, we don't act like the world. We don't pursue the world because that would indicate that you've not been changed. And so notice this. Number one, the corruption is, the, uh, is of the old life and the fallen world around us. But also see the contrast of the new life and the total renewal that is in Christ. So in this passage, you see, look up there at the passage, verse 17, 18, 19, all of those are the corruption of world without Christ. Do you see that? Verse 17, 18, 19, corruption. But look at verse 20. What does it say? What's the first word of verse 20? Circle that word. Um, The word but or the word yet is a very important word in the New Testament, and it it very often is showing a great contrast. And so look at verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So this is the picture of assuming that you've come to the real truth of Christ. And verse 22, here's what you're to do, to, do, to put off your old self, which belongs to the former way of life and is corrupt through dece- deceitful desires. Verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness. So look at the end here. It's talking about the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, and compare that to what you see in verse 17, 18, and 19. You see, there is a great contrast, a tremendous contrast. And so we have been called to walk, and we have been created anew in the likeness of God. And just understand this, to be like God means to be 
righteous and holy. Now, understand, in this day and time, we often hear the word righteous, and we think of that as a bad word. No, friends, have it in your mind. Righteousness is a good thing. Righteousness is a good thing. In fact, the Scripture says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Well, how do we have holiness? We have holiness in one way, one path to holiness, through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's never in us. It's always in Him. And so this always points back to the greatness of God's grace, the bigness of His grace toward us. It's never about us. And if God is going to share with us His righteousness and His holiness, He calls us to live and to reflect that. And that's what we see in this call of how to practice your Christian faith. And in 1 John, he's saying, if you are a Christian, you are not going to continue to live like the world. He's saying, you are going to reflect the righteousness and the holiness of God. You're not going to make excuses for your sin any longer. You're not going to live in the futility of your mind and the darkness of the understanding of the world, but you're going to see and pursue the goodness of who God is. And so we see, number three, we see the corruption, we see the contrast, and now we see the command. And the command is to put off the old self and put on the new self. And this is, this is critically important to what it means to be converted to Jesus Christ. You see, there's, there's some who have taught easy believism. And the idea of easy believism is just come, enjoy the promises, and don't really look at all at the call of a changed life, the call to honor God in the midst of a sinful and fallen world. True repentance, true conversion, there is no true conversion without true repentance. And true repentance is part of this picture of taking off the old clothes, taking off the old way. And in fact, this word to put on or to put off is exactly the same word that you would use when you're putting on clothes or you're taking off clothes. That's the idea. So you're called to put off the old clothes, to put off the old way of life, and to put on the new way of life in Jesus Christ. So just like you would take off a coat, just like you would take off um, a shirt or take off whatever else and put on something else, that is the picture that is here. Now, what is interesting is that Ephesians chapter 4, and I've made a note of this, Ephesians chapter 4 is very similar to Colossians chapter 3, and you really ought to read both of them this afternoon. Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 are, sent, are, are similar, and they use the word put off and put on a lot. Now, what is interesting, and, and just for a moment, because there's value in you understanding the tense of this verb. You know, different verbs have different tenses, past, present, and future, and what kind of action, and who's doing the action. These are in the aorist tense. And I remember, as I was studying Greek in seminary, I remember there were, there were very, for some reason, aorist tense would give me fits. There were some times when you're having to translate or you're having to write and, and use the proper tenses. I remember it, was, it wasn't always an easy tense for me to, to identify and see right away. I had to do a lot of study on that. But the aorist tense, listen to this, it's past, it happened in the past, and it's completed. Generally speaking, it's past tense and it's done. Now, that is the way that this, now apply that to this passage. He's saying to put off the old self, that means you put off the way of the world and it's done. And you put on the new self and you put on the new self in Christ and it's, the picture is here, it's done. So there is a conversion. There's an exchange. 
Now, we know that the Scripture continues to, to talk to us, and, and there's this progressive growth and sanctification. There's no question of that. We see that in the Scripture, but we also see in the Scripture a very clear mentality of conversion to Christ, a transformation to Christ. And yes, he does that, but he is involved with us, and our will is involved with him. And it's, and it's this picture that there is this picture of, of hearing the gospel and obeying the gospel. Jesus began his ministry preaching these words, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so he calls us to put off, to turn away, and to come to Christ. The problem is, is there's many people that have heard a gospel, and it didn't involve a picture of turning to God from self and sin. And so they just, seem, they just seek to add God as a help to them, as opposed to turning to God in abandonment of the world. So the picture is this, put it off and leave it off. And put it on and leave it on. This is the expectation. This is the way of Christ as we are called to walk in Him. Now, flip the page and notice as we go on that as we progress in Ephesians, I want us to just look at 25 through 32. Now, we could go all the way to chapter 6 and finish out chapter 6 because all of that is part of the practice of our, of our faith in, in, in Christ and the, the living out of our salvation. But as I've thought about this, I've thought, man, I need to hear this. And I've thought, you need to hear this. Because I realize that there's, there's many who have maybe come to, come to church for years and they've never deeply been challenged to evaluate their lives under repentance and conversion and transformation to not, not continuing to think like the world, but to think as Christ would have us to think. And so these, and notice these two words that are up there, instructions become very practical, so we see that, and very what? Relational. Because God is a God of relationship. In fact, um, these verses 25 through 32 are, we're, we're going to see here that this is very much about how we relate to other people. Now, you can sin right there within yourself. You can, you can have struggles within sin, and, and there's no doubt about that, and that's dealt with in many, many places in the Scripture, and even in some places it's dealt with here. Um, but our relationship to people is where our holiness is very often really tested. Our relationship to others is where we we constant because we're fallen creatures. We still have the flesh that we deal with, and we can be selfish, and we can be um, self-centered, or we can be um, domineering, or we can we can be under the fear of man, the fear of women, the the fear of what everybody thinks. That's what we mean by that. That we we value what they think more than what God thinks. The men just read a book on that. Um, and, and so, this has to do with very practical instructions. Look at verse 25, therefore having put away. Now, do you see that word, having put away? Again, that's past tense. You put that stuff away. If you've become a Christian, that's no longer you. That's part of the picture here. In verse 25, therefore having put away falsehood. Now, that's one of the greatest distinctions for, of, the, of the people of God versus the people of the world. The people of God have the truth of God. God is true. Everything about him is true. There is no falsehood within him. And so when he converts a person from their lostness and sin to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, they are no longer in the kingdom of darkness as we read in Colossians already, they're no longer in the kingdom of darkness, but now they're in the kingdom of his beloved son, which is the kingdom of light and truth. And so Christians, true Christians, verse 25, having put away falsehood, they are no longer ruled by falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. 
Now, what's interesting in each one of these verses and each one of these phrases is it, it gives an instruction and then very often it kind of tells why. So notice this, the instruction is there for having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for, he, for we are members of one another. Um, so first, you may want to fill this in. There's many things we could say about verse 25, but notice this. Since you reject everything false. You see, true Christians come to reject everything. That should be our goal. That's, that's who we are. We reject falsehood. We walk in truth and integrity. That's what we're called to do. The world may be deceiving and lying. Christians are not to be that way. Christians are to walk in truth. And what we do this is we walk in truth and integrity with one another as a body. Can you circle those words out there to the side, as a body? We see this a lot in Scripture. The Bible talks a lot about the church being the body of Christ. Now, the body of Christ is talking about members, and we talk about members, that's not names on a list, but the picture is hands and feet, arms, eyes, ears, that we are members of a body of whom Christ is the head. Now, I just, I have some images here, and I want you to see one or two of them here. Um, First of all, notice that, what is that? You know what that thing is? That's a sand spur. In fact, it's called a Florida sand spur. Many people call it a Florida sand spur because they're very prominent here. I think that they're also along the East Coast in um, Georgia and South Carolina, but they're certainly sand spur. And have you ever seen this before? Ooh. You know? Kind of makes you go, ooh. Well, have you ever picked up, you're walking along with the beach with your little one, and all of a sudden they go ballistic and they're going nuts and you're trying to figure out why? Right? Or maybe it's you. Maybe it's your foot, the older foot, right? But I just want you to think about when that little sand spur enters into that skin, just, just kind of think about that for a little bit. I often give this illustration because I want you to understand what the Bible is talking about here when it talks about the body of Christ. Just as you have your own body, and when you step on something like that, and somewhere in there, that thing hits a nerve. There's all these little nerves, that, that millions of nerves in your body. And that nerve comes along, and it touches it. Your foot cries out. Your toe, or your, the, the, the sole of your foot, cries out in pain. And what happens? The rest of the body in, is involved. I mean, the rest of the body comes. To, I mean, the, one leg takes over, the other leg picks up. Hand goes for foot. Eyes are looking to see what the problem is. What in the world? And then other hand, I mean, you know, we start, other hand reaches over and holds on to something. Right? The whole body is responding to the problem. The whole body cares about what's going on with the problem. Or if it's a parent, there's a, there's a great example I mean, when you, when you see your little one in agony and pain looking at you like, what are you doing to me? And, you know, it's all suddenly your fault or something, but, but what do you do? As a parent, as a loving parent, you come to save them from this great trauma. Now, friends, notice verse 25. Let's read it again. Look what it says. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth of his neighbor. And then here's the reason. For we are members of one another. You see, just as the body is going to respond to a problem and a pain and a difficulty or something that is not right, the members of the church are to respond in Christ. You see, this is, this is very different from the way the world typically operates. The world typically operates with a me-first mentality. The world typically operates with a very independent mentality. And what we see in the Scripture is that we are to have a very different member uh, uh, mentality. So remember, fill it in, remember the sand spur. Remember the picture that we are members of one body and when there's something wrong that we are to respond to one another 
in grace and love. And we'll see this in even next uh, as we go on. Look at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Again, this has to do with, with your interaction with people around you. This has to do with our relationships. This has to do with perhaps even our church family. And the idea is here, God's Word is not telling you to be angry. The bigger picture here is, is do not let anger cause you to sin. Fill that in. Do not, or just notice that, that is there. Do not let anger cause you to sin. Um, and, and the picture is this, is that there's going to be anger in your life. There's going to come up times when there's anger in your life. And when you deal with that emotion, anger is one of the things that reveals that something's wrong, uh, that, that there's, an, there's an injustice. There, maybe it's been toward you or maybe it's been toward somebody else. But anger is a result of something that is an injustice. And so when we see this, he's saying do not let anger cause you to sin. It's possible to be angry and not sin. We see that Jesus became angry, and he had a righteous indignation about the things that were going on in the name of God in the temple. But here we see that we are called to not allow anger. And, and then notice the next phrase here, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Put in this, put this in, no festering bitterness. Now, I could show pictures of a wound that is festering, and I won't do that. Um, my wife would tell me, why did you do that? So, I, I'm not going to do that, but I want you to think about a wound that is festering. And that's what happens when there's an injustice and it's not dealt with right. What comes out of that is a corruption, a festering. It's not healthy. It's not, it's not getting better at first. It, it, is, it is only getting worse, and that re- comes to a bitterness. And here the Scripture is saying, watch out for that because give no opportunity to who? The devil. If you haven't already circled this, circle this. Watch out. Anger, circle the word, attracts the devil. Anger attracts the devil. He loves to deal with anger. Now, let me remind you who the devil is. The devil is a angry, devouring lion. In fact, notice the scripture that is next to this, 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking someone to devour. And so anger is one of those things that, you know, our world is angry, and the world constantly sins in its anger. The world rarely handles its anger in a righteous way. And Christians are called not to mimic that. Now, there's other emotions that he could deal with here. This is a key emotion of anger. There's other things that he could deal with here. This is just one of many. And we're going to see that again in the next one, that there's, a, there, there's just one example of this. There's many different things that the Apostle Paul could write to the Ephesians saying, don't be like the world in this regard. Anger is a key one. So I want to encourage you to remember, fill it in, remember the lion. Remember the lion that prowls about seeking to destroy your life and others. Christians are not called to go on sinning in that. You've put off the anger of the world. You've put on the anger of Christ toward that which is righteous and that which is for righteousness that we would support that, not anger against righteousness, but anger against that which is unrighteous for the purpose of righteousness. Notice verse 28 is another very practical instruction to us. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share 
with anyone in need. Now, this is another one of those examples where there's a reason given behind it here in verse 28, verse 28, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is a beautiful picture of the Christian heart. And it's just the opposite of that which would be angry. Notice this, for example, and, and that's kind of, verse 28 is, is an example. Um, the thief Conversion involves, fill it in, conversion involves stopping evil and starting good. That's part of what it means to repent and to come to the transformed life of Christ, is that we come to him and by his grace, we stop living in evilness, we stop living in sin, and we start living in righteousness and doing it. So we go from sin to good works. You see, this is the great picture of Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. And then let's don't forget verse 10. And uh, this isn't on the screen, but listen to these words. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's not as a result of works so that no man can boast. It is a gift of God. And then listen to this. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so, for those who have been created in Christ Jesus, created again in him, been born again, we are called to good works. So, it simply doesn't make sense that we continue in our way of sin. Now, Sheridan Hills, this is very important for everyone in this room. Right here in the middle of the message, I want to remind you what this is all about. This is all about us acting like true Christians, and all for the right reasons. And so, if everything about your life, you know, it could be not just the example of the thief, it could be um, entertainment in your life. It could be how you spend your money in your life. It could be how you're raising your kids. It could be a lot of different things that either you're going to do things like the world or you're going to do things like God has called you to do. You say, well, how do I know how to do that? What do I do? That's what his word is for. And so we must come to walk in his word and come. We're no longer darkened in the futility of our minds, but we have the knowledge of God. We have the knowledge of his holiness and his righteousness. That's what he's called us to walk in that. Look at verse 28. Here's another one. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. You see, once again, we see the reason behind it. Look at the end of verse 29, that it may give grace to those who hear. Here, here's the picture. Oh, the tongue. You know, who can t- read the book of James and how it deals with the tongue? The tongue is so small, but it can create so many problems. It's compared to the rudder of a ship. Think about how small the rudder is on an oil tanker. It's a very small thing and compared to the massiveness of the oil tanker. But that little tiny rudder directs that massive ship through the Straits of Gibraltar and across the Atlantic Ocean and into the port of Houston. That's what it does. I mean, that that little rudder determines much about that life. And that is the picture of our tongue. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. You see, your, your talk can be that which corrupts. It can be that which tears down, and that's what it is. Fill it in. Your words will either destroy or build, and this is on a very broad basis. It can be about an individual in the church. Perhaps that's mainly what is focused on here, but listen, it can be about the jokes you tell to the people that are around you. It can be about the news that you share. It can be about the attitudes that you share, and it can demoralize and destroy uh, the people that are around you or portions of their minds and their hearts. Listen, our words should be edifying. That's what the Christian cause is for. Look what it says there, but only such as is good for what? 
building up. That's the word edify. To edify means to build up. As fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. The book of Proverbs talks a lot about a fitting word at the right moment is, is like sweetness. And it's, and it's like a balm, not a balm, but a balm. It's, it's like a soothing salve. It's, it, it brings healing, a fitting word. You know, in your life, when you come across a difficulty, especially a difficulty between two people, or, and this could be at work, this could be at church, this could be at home, you have two buckets with you. When you come across trouble between people, you have a bucket of water and you have a bucket of gasoline. This is true for kids in the home. This is true for parents in the home. This is true in your marriage. This is true in your life. You can either come across that flame that is starting to burn that's a problem and help put it out, or you can come along and have you ever messed with gasoline? I was a pyromaniac as a kid, should cover the ears of the children. I mean, when I was a kid, I, I loved burn piles. I, I did. My grandparents had burn piles. They had burn pile down the keys. They would save up all their stuff, and we'd, back then you could burn it. And they had a farm in North Carolina, and boy, I loved it. Well, I remember one time going up in North Carolina with a can of gasoline to go burn some, some trees that we had cut, um, down by this time, I was probably 11 or 12 years old, and my grandmother looked out the kitchen window and across the agricultural field, they had an agricultural field behind their house. I was headed up the mountain toward what she knew was a burn pot with a can of gasoline. And she did not get to me in time. I had dumped a bunch of gasoline on that thing and, and I lit it. And when I did, I didn't know about those fumes f- flowing downhill. And those fumes flowed right down toward me. And in just a moment, I was at part of the whoom. And, you know, I kind of turned around and saw her running toward me. You know, gasoline is very volatile. And so can the words of your tongue be very volatile. You can either come and bring peace. The world loves to incite a riot. The world loves to foment disaster. The world loves to be part of the problem. But Christians are called to fundamentally work in a different way toward righteousness and that which is good, and especially when it comes to in the body of Christ, and that's the context of Ephesians 4, is that we are called to live differently than the world. This is part of what helps our witness. This is part of what Mike saw when he came a group of people who love one another and care for one another, even if sometimes we kid with each other and play with each other. Notice here with me verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, once again, I want you to notice the end of the verse, verse 30. And by whom you were sealed for the, re- for the day of redemption. I mean, this is the reason not to do that. But what does it say not to do? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. There are several times in the Scriptures that we see the Spirit of God is grieved. Um, just two of them are Isaiah 63, talking about the, people, the Israelites in the wilderness, and Acts chapter 7 and verse 51, part of a message, part of a sermon of, of how the people of God had grieved God. You see, returning to sin, fill this in, or notice this, returning to sin grieves God and invites his chastisement. And what does chastisement mean? It means cor- correction. And so I want to I just say to you, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects. But I want to encourage you that we do not return to sin. We have been delivered from that. We are now called to live in righteousness. And that's part of what 1 John is getting at, that you weren't recreated in Christ Jesus. You weren't born again in Christ Jesus to go on sinning. You were recreated in Christ Jesus to live a holy life. 
And so you can look at your own life and tell, does this, does this indicate that I know God? Does this indicate that I've been saved by Christ? Or am I happy to go on living in sin? Because that would indicate you do not know God. Notice the juxtaposition in this. You see, saddening the one who guarantees your salvation? I mean, you could put a question mark after that as well. I mean, why would you seek to sadden the one? Why would you even allow yourself to sadden the one who has sealed you for the day of redemption? The one who guarantees your salvation. Don't grieve the Spirit of God. Listen to the Spirit of God. Obey the Spirit of God. Depend upon the Spirit of God. You can't obey without Him. Instead, sometimes we see this picture, see this picture of grieving the Spirit of God, and that is not part of what the Christian life is to be about. Notice in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all what? Malice. That is evil intent. Malice is evil intent. My grandmother taught me the game spite and malice. I can't believe that as a Christian family, we play the card game, spite and malice. I know some of y'all are saying, yeah, you pagans. Um, but my grandmother was the best at that. I mean, she could set things up where she was building her power, getting rid of her things, and she would just set you up to fail. I mean, and then you're, you're sitting there playing, and she would go, ha, 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 and it sounded terrible. But, but spite and malice. Now, a card game, that's part of the game is to win, but... You know, in the picture of life, spiting someone and living in malice, that's with bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor. What is clamor? That's when you're making noise, making noise about a problem, the clamor. You're clamoring, you're going on and on about an issue that, it, that is not in forgiveness. It's not in construction, but it's in destruction. And slander is speaking, speaking evil, speaking that which is degrading behind someone's back, to slander them, to say things that are not true about them. You see, verse 31 is, is this, put away all the poison. Put away all the poison. Christians don't administer poison to others. Christians don't do that. And let me tell you that it's the Holy Spirit, for the true Christian, it's the Holy Spirit that sets off a little alarm in their heart that says, don't say that, don't, don't, don't say that. And you need to learn to listen to that little alarm that says, don't, don't do that, don't say that. Now, it is possible for you to hit the reset or the silence button so much that you don't hear that anymore. And if that is the way of your life, you may need to examine whether or not you're a Christian. The answer either way is the same. Repent and turn to Christ in the way of Christ, listening to the voice of Christ, following and obeying Christ. And that'll either save you or it'll get you back on track where you need to be as a Christian. But John is saying true Christians do not go on sinning. Notice the last part, and this is beautiful for the Ephesians passage. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, it says, let's read out loud chapter uh, 4 and verse 32, and everyone please read together. Let's get ready. Let's read verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted." forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see, this is the saved mentality. This is the mindset of Christians. This is the, the beauty of Christ in us. It's the kindness. And by the way, our God is a kind God. Do you know that in Romans it says, do you not know that it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? The kindness of God. So be kind to one another. And then look at this, tender-hearted. 
That means have heart, not hard-hearted, not calloused, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And then we see this beautiful reason behind it. As God in Christ forgave you. So fill it in, put on the way of Christ. And this is seen most in the way you treat others. This is seen in the way that you treat others. So (coughs) this whole picture is that we are called to live the way God lives. We are called to follow after the heart of God in the way of God. And I want you to notice the key questions here. Are you continuing in sin? Are you? Are there certain things that you've just hit the silence button on where the alarm no longer prompts you? Let me tell you that if that is true, you need to evaluate whether you are a Christian. Romans 6 says, put out there to the side, Romans 6, 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The strongest negative in the Greek is this, may it never be. Now, those are sobering words to us. Friday night, I had a conversation with my mother, (laughs) who is a dear woman of God who has studied the Bible for 60 years. And she said, man, the Sermon on the Mount, there's some hard words there. Really hard words. Andrew, do you preach on the Sermon on the Mount? (laughs) I said, Mom, I sometimes do. She said, hard words. You know, even as for seasoned Christians, we see that these are challenging words. The, the way of Christ is the way that the only hope for us is Christ. And let me tell you that God's standard is God's standard. He's not kidding. Here's a key question. Have you put off the old self? Have you really? Have you taken it off and is it gone? Was there a clear distinction when you came to faith in Jesus? Well, let me tell you that if there wasn't, there needs to be now. Maybe it's taken you this long to figure it out. But you need to put off the old self. You need to put off the way of the world. And the only way you can do that is the next question. Is Christ's power bringing you victory in new life? You see, He's called you to a new self. He's called you to a new life. And the only way that you can do that, it's not in you, but it's all in Him. Put out there to the side, John 15. Go read John 15. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. This is the power over sin in the Christian's life. This is the power that whenever there's victory in my life, it's only because of Christ in me, the hope of glory. It's never because of Andrew. I want to say to you that the power of Christ is available to you, and that is found through following Him in the disciplines, spiritual disciplines. And you're, you're participating in one of those disciplines right now. You're at Christian worship. That's one of the key disciplines of the Christian life. But you need to be in prayer. You need to be in God's Word. You need to be giving. You need to be serving. These are spiritual disciplines. This is how Christians grow. I commend you for being here this morning. Go on with the others as well. How about this? Does this, the power of Christ, show in your hidden heart and in your outward actions? Does it show in your hidden heart and does it show in your outward actions? That is what the Apostle John would have us to look at and see. May God give us the strength and the power and the clarity to live in victory in the Christ-centered life that He's called us to live. Would you please stand with me this morning? 
Father in heaven, I pray that as we're standing and as we're thinking about what we've just seen and heard, that we would see clearly that you call us to not live like the world, that true Christians are called to live in the new life that there is in Christ. Lord, I pray that this would be used of you this morning, that your word would be helping us to embrace the mortification, the killing of sin, and that, Lord, that we would embrace the spirit of life in Christ and obedience and holiness and righteousness. Lord, I pray that by your great grace, through the Holy Spirit's administration of this word to us, that we would walk in the truth and that our lives would reflect it and that we would have the joy of seeing you work in us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us. Lord, I pray for the the souls this morning that have been very burdened about sin struggles, things that maybe that they've dealt with time and time again and have felt so guilty about it and have even wondered and perhaps even doubted their salvation because of it. Lord, I pray that today that they would see that, Lord, you're the one who sets us free and that you're the one who empowers us to obey. And Lord, I pray that there would be a leaving behind today of those sins and that we would so prove to be your disciples. And Lord, I pray for those who this morning would say, I've had no power in any of this. I, I've only seen my own frustrations and my own struggles, and I feel like my mind is one of the minds that has been darkened and not enlightened. Father, I pray that this morning for those who feel that way this morning, that they would just look to Christ, that they would hear your voice calling them to believe. The one who says, if you come to me, I will not cast you out. If you come to me, I will receive you. And I will make you my own. Lord, I pray for that this morning. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.